Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about the science of personality assessments. Uh, And full disclosure, we wanted to let you know that the reason we thought to do this topic today was that HowStuffWorks actually hired an audience research firm to study our podcast audiences uh, through surveys and statistical profiling. Yeah, so you took that uh, survey that we put up on Facebook, that's uh what that was all about. Yeah, and lest you think that this was just out of curiosity, you should always keep in mind that marketers and advertisers want to know everything about you. Not because you're so interesting, but because it helps them sell you snack boxes and underwear. Yes. But anyway, they offered a personalized psychometric inventory for each of the individual podcast audiences. So each podcast got their own, uh, and it was based on a test originally compiled by the Society for Personality and Social Psychology subdivision of the APA. And I thought this was really cool. Like, they came up with a psychological profile. It was basically a, a personality sketch that listed key personality traits that were characteristics unique to each podcast audience. And so I I picked like five of the traits they listed as unique to the archetypical stuff to blow your mind listener. So I thought you guys might be interested in this. Yeah, yeah. Let's roll these out. And then uh, as we do, you can just think, well, think yourself, does that jive with my outlook on life and how I view myself? Uh, Yeah. So here we go. Number one. You tend to be independent thinkers, hesitant to accept the statements of others without adequate proof. Number two, you prefer a certain amount of change and variety and become dissatisfied when hemmed in by restrictions and limitations. Three, at times you experience (laughs) varying degrees of social anxiety. Number four, you are motivated by a strong desire for fairness and reciprocity in social situations. Five, at times you have serious doubts as to whether you've made the right decision or done the right thing. So before we get into the meat of today's episode, I just wanted to mention that uh, if you're a regular listener and you want to let us know how accurately this profile describes you, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com and give us feedback on on the sketch. And unfortunately, everything I just said was made up. Yes. Yes. This is a little slice of fiction, a slice of necessary fiction to get into our topic today. Yeah. So there was no audience survey, no survey data. We just threw together that sketch from a few pre-existing generic descriptions. Yeah, hopefully nobody's upset about it. But if you are, you can contact uh, HowStuffWorks chief uh, legal consultant, Richard W. Glazer. That's right. Uh, but be honest now. Were you thinking for a second, yeah, that sounds like me? I have to admit, when I read through them, even knowing that, that we had just made this up, I was thinking, yeah, that's how I view it as a co-host of the show. Yeah, I am completely susceptible to this effect we're going to talk about today. I think if I had been in the audience's position here, I would have been like, yep, that describes me, I think, at least in the kind of egotistical, self-absorbed, self-congratulatory way we sometimes all tend to be. I, I'm sure that I tend to be on the inside. Mm-hmm. Uh If you weren't convinced, congratulations for being a skeptical know-it-all. But uh, if you were convinced, don't feel ashamed because you just displayed susceptibility to an effect that shows up in most humans, no matter how smart we are. 
And this is known as the Forer effect, F-O-R-E-R, or the Barnum effect. Both names refer to the exact same thing, and we'll probably use the terms interchangeably today, but mainly we're going to use Barnum effect in the podcast because that's easier to say out loud. Right. So the Barnum version of the name comes from the circus kingpin P.T. Barnum. And I'm thinking it could be ascribed to two different quotes attributed to Barnum, either that there's a sucker born every minute, yeah. which apparently he did not actually say, but according it's often, to the internet. But it's just attributed yeah. to him a lot. Or that Barnum had something for everybody. And I think that latter one might be what's key here. Yeah, and if he didn't have something for everybody, he wanted to sell a product to everyone. <laughs> right, you know, exactly. This is a, the circus product is intended for a wide audience, and he wants to draw in as many people as possible. Yeah, he's got to he's got to push those jugglers, you know. Uh, but the Forer title comes from the American psychologist Bertram R. Forer, and he noticed this effect in a classic paper he published in the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology in 1949. And this paper was called The Fallacy of Personal Validation, a Classroom Demonstration of Gullibility. Now, to give you a little background on Forer, uh, Bertram R. Forer, he was born in 1914, died in 2000. American psychologist, uh, again, famous for this 1948 personality test on his students. But he served as a psychologist uh, and administrator in a military hospital in France during the Second World War. And then he worked in L.A. Uh, at a, a, a veterans mental clinic. And also he had a, a private practice in Malibu. Yeah. So what did Forer test with his students? Forer had previously discussed with his students a sort of proto-personality quiz called the Diagnostic Interest Blank, or DIB. And this was a qualitatively evaluated test that he explained in the following language. He said, quote, The DIB consists of a list of hobbies, reading materials, personal characteristics, job duties, and secret hopes and ambitions of one's ideal person. The test is interpreted qualitatively, and personality dynamics are inferred along lines similar to projective tests. So this is a... It's supposed to be qualitatively evaluated by a perceptive and trained professional, somebody who knows what they're doing. And some of his students, when they heard about the test, asked to take it. They wanted to take the DIB and receive these tailored personality evaluations because, you know, who, <laughs> who doesn't want to take a personality quiz and learn a little bit about themselves? Right. I mean, that's it just speaks to our our egos as well as, you know, most people's desires for self-improvement. You know, we want to. We want we want to fill out that Dungeons and Dragons character sheet with right. our own attributes and figure yeah. out what we need to tweak with a magical ring or two. Right, I am chaotic neutral for real. <laughs> uh, so, four acquiesced to their desire, and a group of thirty nine students all took the test and handed in their papers. And then one week later, Forer met with the students again for class, and he handed back the individually tailored personality vignettes. And each one was a list of 13 perceived personality attributes under the student's name. And the students were instructed to keep their results private. That part was important because, in fact, 13 personality features listed on each student's paper had nothing to do with what the students wrote on their test. Uh, in fact... They were all exactly the same for uh, each one of the 39 students. 
So there were 13 statements listed on each of these 39 identical personality sketches, and we're going to read through them real quick. Number one, you have a great need for other people to like and admire you. You have a tendency to be critical of yourself. You have a great deal of unused capacity, which you have not turned to your advantage. While you have some personality weaknesses, you are generally able to compensate for them. Your sexual adjustment has presented problems for you. Disciplined and self-controlled outside, you tend to be worrisome and insecure inside. At times, you have serious doubts as to whether you've made the right decision or done the right thing. You prefer a certain amount of change and variety and become dissatisfied when hemmed in by restrictions and limitations. You pride yourself as an independent thinker and do not accept other statements without satisfactory proof. You have found it unwise to be too frank in revealing yourself to others. At times you are extroverted, affable, sociable, while at other times you are introverted, wary, reserved. Some of your aspirations tend to be pretty unrealistic. Security is one of your major goals in life. <laughs> so the brilliance of these is that, like, just going through them there, knowing, again, that they, these are false, that these are just, you know, could be thrown out to anybody, mm-hmm. I found myself nodding my head and saying, yeah, I can definitely, I can, if, if I don't buy that statement outright, I can at least pick some data from my own personal history that could support that theory. Yeah, and that is exactly what the test ends up relying on. So Forer reveals in a footnote of his paper that, quote, these statements came largely from a newsstand astrology book. <laughs> <laughs> so... He just found a horoscope and and picked out random statements that could apply to a Capricorn, a Sagittarius, whoever it is. And students were then asked to rate on a scale of zero to five, with zero being poor and five being perfect, the accuracy of the DIB as a test and then the accuracy of their own individual sketch as a portrayal of their personality. And then he also asked the students to go down the list and mark each of the 13 statements as true, false or a question mark. Here were the results. As rated by the students, the DIB got only one three. It got 25 fours and it got 13 fives. So 13 students thought it was perfect. <laughs> uh, 25 thought it was really good and one thought it was okay. So all of the students but one gave the test a four or a five for accuracy. And then when it came to the individual sketches, all but five students rated their sketch a four or a five. Hmm. So the students overwhelmingly thought the test was pretty good to perfect. And an interesting thing Forer points out when comparing the student ratings of the test and the sketch against their item-by-item breakdown is this, quote, For some individuals, the presence of eight true statements among the 13 was considered sufficient evidence for acceptance of the sketch as perfect. Hmm. Let that sink in for a second. Eight out of 13 is 62%. (laughs) So for some students, even with these extremely vague statements, just getting 62% right about them was enough for the test to count as a perfect hit. Yeah, how does that how does that work? Uh, what's your definition of perfect in this? I don't know. Well, I think it comes down to something Forer explains in his paper later about the discrepancy between uh, our sort of like qualitative or quantitative analysis of the results and then the amount of confidence we're willing to attribute to a diagnostic tool as a whole. But what happened here? I mean, subsequent studies have repeatedly demonstrated 
the Barnum effect under various circumstances. So it's pretty safe to assume that Forer students weren't just particularly gullible. Right. Uh, in R.T. Carroll's entry in the Skeptics Dictionary, he claims, quote, the test has been repeated hundreds of times with psychology students, and the average is still around 4.2 out of 5, or 84% accurate. So why are we so eager to gobble up worthless, effectively random assessments of ourselves? Well, as, as we'll discuss, the uh, you know a lot of the answer lies in the presentation. You know uh, where this test was was taken and who was giving it to them, and then the the language in which it was uh, administered. Right? It's a psychology professor. It's a you know an authority figure administering this test to the students in a classroom, in a center of learning, uh, and it's wrapped in the uh, the expected uh, psychological lingo. Yes, but there's an even deeper issue going on with the nature of these evaluations that makes them work, and it's based on the interplay between two principles that Forer points out in his paper. And uh, Forer is referring to certain types of people like crystal gazers is one term he uses. I think that means like somebody looking into a crystal ball. He's talking about the psychics of his day and, Mm -hmm. and things like that. He says they might even unwittingly make use of these principles, but they are making use of them. And the principles are universal validity and personal validation. His term is personal validation, but today we might know this as subjective validation. And the idea of universal validity is that pretty much every single psychological trait can be observed in some degree in everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about it. Like if I say at times you experience varying degrees of social anxiety. Yeah, that's that's everybody. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, with with a few just complete uh, space aliens, uh, you know, eliminated from the mix, everybody deals with some level of anxiety. Right. Uh, so another way of thinking about this is casting a wide net. Mm-hmm. And you can see a very similar parallel practice if you watch a psychic in ah. front of a group of people doing a cold reading on a crowd. So the psychic might stand up in front of a crowd and say, OK, I'm getting something from a spirit. Uh, a spirit of someone known to someone in the room. It's an older person, an older person named John or Jack. Does that mean anything to anyone? Something, something starting with John or Jack, something starting with the letter J, and then one hand goes up. I had up. an uncle named Jefferson. Exactly, yeah. Thing, oh, yeah. man, my uncle Jehoshaphat. <laughs> and then... Uh, and then the psychic says, yes, that's right. Jehoshaphat or Jefferson is here with us. And, mm-hmm. and now we can talk to Jefferhoshaphat. And then the client later says, wow, the psychic somehow knew something about Jehoshaphat. When, in fact, the client has supplied the relevant specifics themselves. Mm-hmm. And the psychic was just trawling with a very large net. It would be extremely weird if nobody in the room knew of a deceased family member whose name started with J. Yeah, yeah, it's just the, the odds are with you that you're going to catch somebody with that very vague, very general uh, bit of bait. Yeah, but then the other principle is this principle of personal or subjective validation. So how do you test the validity of a diagnostic instrument, whether it's a, a horoscope or a psychic or a supposedly professional and valid psychological personality test? You probably don't want to test it by using it on somebody and then saying, how accurately did this describe you? Because this is subject to what Forer would call the fallacy of personal validation. Because you are you and because you know the story of your own life so well, 
you can always find autobiographical hooks to hang almost any statement on, especially vague and general statements. So we mentioned the example a minute ago of social anxiety. Can you ever think of an instance where social anxiety had a meaningful role in your life? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I Every day. <laughs> <laughs> Even somebody who's not particularly anxious, who doesn't have many problems with social anxiety, can think of an instance that was meaningful to them. Yeah, at the very least, they were once children, and there had to have been some point in their life where they felt a little awkward. Yeah, and so simply put, Subjective validation is when you find personal and unique accuracy in statements that could apply to many or all people. Yeah, and part of this just gets into our our, our enormous capacity uh, to place ourselves in any story, to yeah. uh, just the fact that we are empathic organisms. Yeah, know? yeah. Um, and we're, we're always seeking meaning that relates to us. This sort of ties into something we talked about a while back in the, the Science of Coincidence episode mm-hmm. where, uh, w- you know, we're pattern-seeking creatures and we're constantly trying to find the pattern that means something to me. Yeah. I, you know, you're talking about our ability to even um, essentially put ourselves in the shoes of extreme cases. Yeah. Um, you know, this this immediately makes me think of the popularity of uh, – uh, you know, any kind of uh, fiction that deals with uh, individuals with mental illness or in extreme cases, um, serial murderers, mm-hmm. you know, because if you have a, a well executed serial killer story, um, you can still you still end up uh, investing yourself in that person on some level. You end up empathizing with at least some aspect of their, you know, ultimately broken psyche. Right, yeah. So if you if you can connect with the serial killer's relationship with his mother mm-hmm. or something like that, you're like, oh, no, is this really the story of me? Yeah, or like... Uh uh, I'm obviously thinking of Hannibal. <laughs> yeah, H- Hannibal actually came up a couple of times in my mind, uh, looking at the research here. Yeah. Um, I think it was Joyce Carol Oates has a book called Zombie that's essentially a, a retelling of um, of the Jeffrey Dahmer uh, case, but with a you know fictionalized account. Mm-hmm. And so even in this, you know, you're reading in it and uh, you, you can't actually uh, – empathize with the murderous aspects of the the main character but ultimately it's about a a guy who is feels lost in life and doesn't exactly know where he fits and you know who can't empathize on some level at some point in their their timeline with an example like that right yeah in a way we're all that cannibal yeah it makes me wonder if you if you administered a test um like a forest test and you had all of the personality statements uh, leaning more towards uh, the the darker and the insane, <laughs> like what the acceptance level would be. Well, there actually is some commentary on that in the literature, and we ah. can get to that in a bit. What are some other studies that? Uh, what have other studies uh, revealed about this uh, this property? Well, there have been number one. It's just been reproduced many, many times, mm-hmm. and the strength of the effect varies when you change some of the test conditions, and we can talk about that later. Uh, but there's a pretty consistent result that the subjects of personality assessments tend to rate assessments as highly accurate in a way that's unique to them, even though the statements within the assessment are vague in general. And sometimes even when many of the individual statements in the list are subjectively perceived as wrong by the client. Remember when we talked about the people who got 8 out of 13 right said that the test described them perfectly. So what's the impact of this in practice? Well, one of the things that Forer was personally worried about was that this could be used 
to validate or prop up the accuracy of very bad tools. So let's say you're an unscrupulous psychic or an unscrupulous psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. You can potentially use a combination of subjective validation and universal validity to get a very unhealthy amount of leverage over another person's common sense. And the exchange might go something like this. The psychic or unscrupulous psychologist makes a diagnosis of a person's personality, taking advantage of these, you know, very vague general traits and then leaning on the client's tendency towards subjective validation of the test. The client reads these things uh, like in the, the test we talked about and says, yep, that's me, and then assumes that the psychic or the unscrupulous psychologist has access to powerful and accurate skills or diagnostic tools. Then the psychic or unscrupulous psychologist makes bolder, more specific, less credible diagnoses or or predictions that might not have been accepted on the first go round. But at this point, the client thinks, well, he knew what he was talking about the last time, so he must know this time I'm going to listen to him. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a confidence trick, right? I mean, it's uh, it's, it's a matter of producing this sort of uh, magical trick, this illusion uh, that proves to the the patient or the uh, the mark, or however you want to want to look at them, the customer uh, proves to them that you have insight into who they are and what they're all about. And then when they start making uh, comments that that don't jive as well, we just attribute it to their they know more about us than we know about us. Yeah, remember when I was right last time? It's mm-hmm. also very similar to the the con maneuver. If you're trying to con somebody out of a large amount of money, say like, uh, "Hey, invest in my pyramid scheme. It'll you know I can give give you a million dollars." First, you ask for a very small investment, mm-hmm. and then you pay out what you promised on that small investment. And then they say, wow, okay, well, it, it seems to work. And so then when you ask for a bigger investment, you can fly off to Hawaii with the money. You probably wouldn't fly to Hawaii. Where would you fly to? Cayman Islands. Yeah, or the Far East, I'm thinking. Yeah, or the Halls of Dagon. Yeah, always a good place. I, it, it's tough to get the currency exchanged uh, properly there, but <laughs> uh, but still still a good place. A lot of con men hanging out in the depths. Right, and this can be applied to more different types of diagnostic tools and instruments than you might think. I mean, so the obvious ones we've talked about are like the personal powers of a person who claims to be a psychic or a certain type of psychological test, any one of these personality tests you can take. But other things might be methods of discerning personalities like graphology. Have you ever heard about graphology? Not until uh, preparing this episode, no. Yeah, so so Forer claimed that he was prompted to perform this experiment after he was accosted in a nightclub by a graphologist. And a graphologist is a person who believes they can tell you all about your personality by looking at your handwriting. You know, this makes me think that this nightclub was either really cool... Or, or really lame. Like, there's no in between there if, yeah. if it involves being approached by a graphologist. It, it sounds pretty cool to me. I never get approached by graphologists <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm out having a, you know, at a bar or somewhere. Uh, I wish I would be because that would be really interesting. But yeah, so graphology is widely considered a baseless pseudoscience, though I'm sure some people still believe in it, and that's kind of scary. But Forer wanted to demonstrate that he could, with deliberately faulty techniques, produce assessments that clients would find just as accurate as those provided by a professional graphologist. 
So repeat the same pattern I talked about a minute ago with the with the psychic or the unscrupulous psychologist where they prove themselves and the and the accuracy of their diagnostic tools with some very general vague statements, just relying on the fact that you're going to go, wow, yeah, it sounds like me. And bam, now graphology works and I can get you to give me all your money. Now, you don't have to go to a graphologist or, uh, you know, or even listen to the intro to this podcast to, uh, to have some, uh, introduction to the, the, the power of the four effect. Right. Um, and, and as we were chatting about this, we kind of, uh, looked at, um, at four different levels. Like at the, now at the very bottom level, you have essentially horoscopes and fortune cookies. And yeah. it's worth noting on fortune cookies that every time, even though we know those are just coming from a crate in the back of the Chinese restaurant, even though we we really don't attribute any literal significance to what's coming out of the cookie, they still resonate with us because <laughs> we still, at least for a second, we dis- we suspend disbelief just enough to engage in a worldview where the future is more than mystery and chance, right? Yeah, absolutely. Which, yeah. I have to ask, what's your favorite fortune cookie you've ever gotten? Um, years and years and years ago, I got one that was uh, said, one day you'll write a book. I was like, yeah, that's great. That's what I want to do anyway. So, uh, so I kept that one. It's like now like, they predicted the age of self-publishing, yeah. and then they were going to be right about no matter who opened that cookie. That's true. But uh, you know, it um, it was you know even though I knew it was a vague statement, it's kind of like on some level I took it as encouragement, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm if I'd gotten a fortune cookie that said you will write a book, I would still have that <laughs> in my wallet and be like, yep, I'm going to be a writer someday. <laughs> that's how important I am. Uh, no, my favorite fortune cookie I ever got was the one that said, constant grinding will wear the iron rod down to a needle. Huh. What does it mean? <laughs> I'm not quite sure. Huh. Like, it's telling you not to file yourself with huh. a file. Do you wear a mouth guard at night? Because if I, yeah. if I had gotten that one, I would think, oh, well, that was clearly forecasting that I grind my teeth and would need to wear a night guard. Oh, huh. yeah. Well, it could have been that. But Look uh, to it. Take that fortune, if you still have it, to your dentist and say... Look into it. Uh, I don't know. My dentist is moderately humorless. <laughs> but okay, yeah. So you have you have fortune cookies, which, like you point out, it, they're especially funny because we give them the significance. Even though, like, like let's say you're a person who believes in astrology, mm-hmm. the fortune cookie doesn't even aspire to the astrology level right. because you know they're all just pre-printed ahead of time and they're they're in a box. Yeah. So at least the the horoscope is the uh, is the higher end of this level yeah. because it's at least rooted in this system. It's a system that doesn't have any validity to it, but if you suspend the disbelief or engage in a little magical thinking, you can buy into the system and then buy into the results of the system. Right. But that was the first level. What's the next level? Oh, the, the next level we think <laughs> Uh, then the next level we think is, uh, the which X-Men character are you? Right. Uh, and, and not necessarily just the which X-Men character are you, but any of these various pseudo personality quizzes based in fiction, uh, that end up, you know, they, it seems like for a while they were always rolling out on Facebook. It was like every day it was a new one and you take this little generally poorly executed quiz and generally with very leading questions to determine which uh, X-Men character are you, which Twilight character are you, which which uh, house in Harry Potter uh, yeah. would you be in. That's right. I am Gambit. Yeah. 
Yeah, and they would have questions like, <laughs> what would be your preferred weapon in a fight? Uh, adamantium claws or exploding playing cards? See, and, that's just cheating because yeah. then the, the person is basically choosing which X-Men character they want to be and just picking. Yeah, the, I think one of the problems was there ended up being websites where you could build your own. So people would just build them without any any thought into what makes you know makes it seem like they work the better ones and i think the ones that were not user generated tended to feel a little more like a personality test yeah the, it should be a surprise when it tells you that you are juggernaut yeah. <laughs> and from from there we get into the next level which of course uh, psych- involves psychic readings cold readings where there's an actual intellect on the other side of the test yeah. drawing you in conning you with that uh, you know with that with that little bit of generally uh, applicable uh, uh, data and then uh, making more specific uh, um, uh, revelations visible about your your personal history and your future and uh, uh, your departed loved ones in the afterlife. Yeah, there it's interactive and it's smart. The person knows what they're doing and they're working you. Yeah, you know, it, it's not just like a, a, a kind of blank, dumb statement that you have to read into. They're helping you read into it actively. Yeah, and then of course, in the level beyond that, you have the quote professional personality test. This is, of course, like Myers-Briggs, the kind of test that a professional might come into your workplace and actually administer the test to everyone. Yeah, and we're certainly not saying that all professionally administered psychological tests are bunk. That right. That's not the case. What we are saying is that it's very possible for a psychologist to design a personality assessment that is bunk and you might very well not know it. Right. And, you know, I would go even, even, even further and say that I I believe that people can use the cold reading techniques and psychic reading techniques for an overall positive experience with a person. But it kind of comes down to that the question. You know, it's like if you let somebody go through the drawers in your house, are you going to trust them not to steal your silverware, right? So <laughs> that, I'm, I'm positive there are individuals. I know there are individuals who've had the experience with psychics and, uh, and cold readers and, and individuals using this technique where they at least feel that there is some sort of temporary, at least, positive result from the experience. Oh, yeah. Well, as I said earlier in this episode, despite the fact that I'm aware of it and I'm going to try to be cautious about it, I think I'm very susceptible to this. I think I could easily, naturally be the kind of person that falls for it. If you tell me uh, at times you experience social anxiety, but also you're an independent thinker, I'm Mm -hmm. like, yeah, yeah, you know, that is me. So here's here's a big question that emerges. Are there ways to make generic assessments feel more accurate to people, to to make sure that they're not instantly being called out uh, for for the kind of generalities that are are a hallmark of this kind of manipulation? Yeah, I think the first number one key principle is keep the descriptions as vague and generally applicable as possible without it being too obvious that they're meaningless. Right. And this is a fine line that, that you have to walk with language if you're going to try to be a deceptive, no good diagnostician. Um, so you wouldn't say, for example, you are an extrovert or an introvert. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously you're one of the two, right? Yeah. But you can say that without it being so clear. I think it needs a little careful use of language. So you would try something like, you're often able to find fulfillment in social events and relationships, but at times you feel like you need to be by yourself. Now, another possibility here comes to mind with the, with the psychic. We were talking, like if a psychic were to say, there's somebody in the room here who knew an old person who died. Like that sounds just really fake. But if you were to p- 
phrase it more like somebody here lost uh, an individual and they were really just a strong presence in their life. They were a real, you know, a personal hero, a kind of a mentor. A rock for you. Yeah. Like you, you, you change the way you're describing it. You change the language of it. And, uh, and then you might think, yeah, well, you know, my Uncle Ben was kind of like that. Mm-hmm. Without it just being like, who's an old person I know that died? Oh, I can choose from six, you know? Right. But it's still general enough that you could you could just throw that out there and see what you catch. Yeah, you're, you're creating the illusion that you're narrowing the scope without really narrowing it by much. Right. So choose your words carefully. In fact, I wanted to highlight, it's in the spirit of one of my favorite quotes from uh, Calvin and Hobbes, which is when Calvin, he's talking about how he used to hate writing assignments for school, but mm-hmm. then he decides he loves them because he says, quote, the purpose of writing is to inflate weak ideas, obscure poor reasoning, and inhibit clarity. that's kind of true so there are some specific words that will be very useful to you useful modifiers like some Mm -hmm. isn't that a great word because some could mean anything from 1% to 99% it includes all options except none or all yeah it's like saying if you were to say you're a real dirt bag. And you're like, I don't know if the psychic really knows me. Sometimes you're a real dirt bag. And then you have to think, well, maybe I am. Maybe, yeah. you know. Whether you're mostly a dirt bag or only occasionally a dirt bag, that's true. Yeah, there's got to be at least some moment in your personal history where you're like, ah, I was kind of sliding towards the dirt bag level of the spectrum yeah. on that one. Yeah, so that sometimes, some, and then at times. That's a great one. <laughs> because at times, that, that sounds like psychological test language, yeah. too. At the same time, you want to convince the mark here that the Barnum profile is unique, right? Yeah. Uh, and this was key in Ford's experiment. Um, uh, and, and he uh, actually he described the following scene. After he had collected feedback on the test, he said he was going to read a list of selected traits out loud. And if the students had the trait on their profile, they needed to raise their hand. After Ford read the first trait, every hand in the room went up. And then the students burst out laughing. The moment the students realized their profiles were not 100% unique, that's when they instantly knew the personality sketch was bunk. Right. So in this, we get into the whole fortune cookie scenario. Like, if you know all the fortune cookies are the same, the only way you're going to get into it is if you suspend disbelief or even just, you know, it's hard to even have the magical thinking uh, uh, cranked up high enough to buy a fortune cookie. It's amazing how much that works. I mean, e- even knowing what we know about fortune cookies, mm-hmm. not thinking they're magical. Imagine if you were sitting at a table and everybody opened their fortune cookie at the Chinese restaurant and they all had the same fortune on them. Right. You'd, it, like it wouldn't even feel as significant to you as it normally does when you normally know it's not significant. Right. But if you have the at least the illusion that has been personally prepared for you, like nobody does this. But what if the fortune cookie chef came to your table? Uh, as if they were going to, you know, custom your, your guacamole. Fortune. Yeah, and, you know, did some sort of, uh, you know, I don't know, some sort of uh, ritual, right? Or, it, you know, did some, maybe scanned you with some sort of device and then read it out on a meter and then yeah. wrote it down. You know, if you had Table-side fortune yeah, preparation. Yeah, table-side fortune cookie preparation. This could be big. This would allow you to to perceive it as an individualized uh, exercise, and then you would, you, of course you would buy it. Even if it's like one of those really horrible fortune cookies that just throws out some little adage rather than even attempting to uh, to forecast your future. Yeah. Uh, so here's another one. Be flattering. Flatter <laughs> the person. One of the findings of a 1985 literature review by Dixon and Kelly uh, was that there's some evidence that positive or favorable assessments are more readily accepted as accurate. So mm-hmm. if you're reading a list of traits 
that are your feedback from the personality test you took, if they're mostly negative, you're less likely to say this is very accurate than if they're mostly positive. And it doesn't have to mean that they're all positive. In fact, I would think that might not work if they're all just glowing reviews of you. So what I would do if I was designing one of these is make it 80 to 90 percent really nice things about you and then a couple of harmless criticisms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to have it, uh, you know, it's kind of like buying a character in fiction, right? Yeah. They need to have some flaws. They need to have some uh, some, uh, some strengths. You need to be able to get behind the, the idea that this is a real person. But they have to be overall likable or nobody's going to buy yeah. them as the protagonist. Yeah. <laughs> well, then, I don't know if that's true for fiction because well, I mean, who doesn't love Snake Plissken? He has positive attributes. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. You know, he's... he's he true- stands up for what he believes in. He's true to himself, yeah. And, you know, he's... Uh, <laughs> He, he's he's also true to his crew. That's important too. You know, like when he gets out and he finally talks to the president, uh, you know, the first thing he says is like, "These people, well, some of these people died for you." You know, you gotta you gotta stand by them. And the president's too busy prepping, and that's when right. he decides to tear up the tape. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but yeah, when a character is just too unlikable, instantly comes to mind that show Last Man on Earth. I don't know if you watched any of this. No, I've never Fox. seen it. Uh, Will Forte in the lead playing the. This uh, this man who survived after the apocalypse, and it's and then he starts encountering random survivors. But he's the center of it, and it's a good show. But the character is so unlikable that I ended uh, I, when I, the last episode I watched. I think I spent the whole thing just hoping cannibal wanderers would show up and eat him because mm. it's like I can't really get behind him because he's so despicable. Oh man, yeah. I think of this because just a couple of weeks ago on July Fourth we. Uh, in our house watched Jaws, which we do every oh, yes. year on July 4th. Oh, that's a good tradition. Yeah, but have you ever read the book? No, I haven't. Every single character is detestable. <laughs> there, there, there's not a single even remotely likable character. They had to change. I don't know. I have huh. no idea whether that was intentional or not. But you just want the shark to eat them all. Weird. And they had huh. to change it for the movie. I, it's hard to imagine that now with as like lovable as Quint is in the movie. Yeah, that's weird. No, I read... I read Peter Benchley's ben, uh, Beast mm-hmm. about the giant squid, but that's the only Benchley book I've ever read. Yeah, I, I've never ventured into the Benchley deep cuts. Well, that's that's it's the only cut uh, I've listened to. But it, anyway, it was fun in the day. Somebody fights a giant squid with a chainsaw. Right. Oh, uh, wait. Let's get back. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah, we have one more, and this one's pretty simple. Project high status and scientific authority. It's, right. It kind of like if you put this in the the guise of the uh, the psychic reader or the the magician, like wear a fancy cloak, have a cool beard, right? Mm-hmm. Like drape yourself in the authority of the station you're in. And if you're trying to uh, to to pull this off as like a personality assessment thing, like have some sort of scientific authority to you. Throw out some scientific lingo. Have some sort of gadget that you whip out at your tableside fortune cookie preparation. Right. I uh, I actually tried to incorporate this into the little deception I used at the beginning of the episode when I said that the test we used was a survey created by the Society for Personality and Social Psychology subdivision of the APA, which is a real subdivision. Don't know if they've ever created a test. <laughs> you know. But it, yeah, it sounded accurate because you were throwing out some 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 jargon, throwing out the, the name of an organization, and your mind kind of stops listening and just sort of checks it off. Like, yeah, that sounds that sounds accurate. Yeah. yeah. Now there are of course a number of of positives here. As we as we touched on, you know, you can have fun with a fortune cookie. You can enjoy your horoscope. You yeah. can uh, people you, love these online personality quizzes. Yeah, you you can appreciate the, the the you know some sort of personal satisfaction in finding out that you're Wolverine. Um, and in some cases, I maintain you can. 
you know, and the, the right kind of psychic can, uh, can get inside your head a little bit and right. have a positive effect on you. I mean, you could argue that to a certain extent, uh, therapists are using the same, uh, the, the same devices. They're just using it, uh, with some sort of ethical, um, uh, structure in place. Oh, yeah. This is a thing that is, I've read pointed out about some psychics before. Like, it doesn't have to be true that they have psychic powers. Like, the paranormal doesn't have to exist for them to perhaps have insights that are useful to you. Right. So there's a, actually a really good article on this, and I'll link to this on the landing page of this episode. Uh, Susan Krauss of Whitbourne's, when it comes to personality test, a dose of skepticism is a good thing. And this is from Psychology Today. And she presents, uh, first of all, the dark side of uh, the four effect um, as, as really coming down to key, three key uh, things. One, it allows others to scam you out of money. Right, because... Because of that thing Forer mentioned where if if it works on you once, now you have logged in your brain, okay, this device is worth trusting. Right. And, and that device could be a particular test. Could, it could be, be graphology. Yeah, it could be a psychic on TV. Could be an advertising uh, um, slogan, you know? Like, oh, well, they, they really kind of got into who I am. They know who I am. I should buy their shampoo. <laughs> Um, number two, it makes you more susceptible to bad advice. Yeah. We kind of touched on that already, but yeah, they, they're, they're in your head, you're, you're trusting them, and now they can start telling you all sorts of horrible things. And then uh, number three, it makes you less susceptible to good advice that isn't as lubricated. Oh man. Yeah. So if somebody, so let's say you take a very well designed psychology test mm-hmm. that gives you a good profile of your personality that has all kinds of specifics that aren't as well packaged as these vague generalities you would mm-hmm. get in another test, you might actually not trust the good feedback. Yeah, or imagine the pyramid scheme uh, guy. You know, like he's coming up, he's buying you drinks, he's really laying it on thick. You're really buying into what he's selling because he's selling it so well. And he's he's already gained your trust. Uh, meanwhile, your actual accountant is saying, hey, you really need to be careful about these investments. But your actual accountant's kind of boring. And right. you've made yourself, <laughs> uh, you, and he doesn't, it, his, his information isn't as well lubricated as that of the charlatan. Yeah. So she has four key recommendations to avoid the pitfalls, just to, you know, just to keep in, in your mind as you're moving through life. Number one, know a fortune cookie when you see one. Obviously, that's that's my uh, summation of this particular one. Uh, but yeah, like know what you're dealing with. Yeah, be on the lookout for statements that are universally valid and recognize them as such. Right. Yeah, that's the second one. Yeah, you look for evidence of validity. Read between the lines. Look for that ambiguity we've been talking about. Is this a statement that could apply to anyone? And I'm just grabbing onto the bait. And then finally, trust actual professionals yeah. as opposed to um, advertisements and TV psychics. No, 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 wait, no. Maybe you haven't encountered my favorite TV psychic, uh, Dr. You're So Great. Now, Dr. You're So Great has some really interesting things to say about how smart I am. Yeah? Yeah. Dr. You're So? Yeah. <laughs> Well, they can they can be very convincing. I you know I don't watch as much TV uh, these days, and not like you know in the old days you turn on the TV and you just had to absorb what it gave you. So mm-hmm. I don't even know what's out there. I don't are there know. are there YouTube psychics the way there used to be TV psychics? I would hope so, but like there was the guy with the gray plastic hair. Do you remember him? No. What is that? Oh goodness, I should have I should have uh, thought to look him up before the podcast episode. But he had it was like this just normal looking kind of doughy. Dude, and he had hair that was seemingly made out of plastic. I just Googled psychic gray plastic hair, and the first result is Dorian Gray syndrome. Hmm. Well, now I'm even more intrigued uh, <laughs> as that he may have, this man may have suffered from uh, some sort of disorder that involved an aging painting. But uh, 
But certainly there was just a whole rogues gallery of TV psychics back in the day. Certainly. But, you know, they're each unique, one and all. Yeah. Um, but again, there's still the, the, the other positive side to uh, to this is that it allows us to really get into our music, right? Oh, yeah, of course. We were talking about this the other day with the the general lyrical themes of pop music. And I was thinking about this in contrast to the way you handle specificity versus generality in mm-hmm. fiction. If you're writing a short story or a novel or something like that, you don't want to sketch characters in a general way. You want to sketch them in a specific way to have interesting, unique details that make them who they are. Right. For some reason, in fiction, we connect better with specifically drawn characters. But in pop music, very often, if you look at the lyrics, they are utterly devoid of specifics. They are they're they're doing this game where you paint an extremely vague generalities that could apply to almost any person at any time and people do seem to respond to that yeah cuz often the generalities are you know kind of mantras that you can get behind uh you know statements of power like like I remember, like uh, when I would uh, listen to like Nine Inch Nails in high school, there would be a, you know, it seems like in more than one song he would throw in that line, "Nothing can stop me now," you know, and it'd be you know, kind of a you know a dark gothy Nine Inch Nails yeah. lay. But you listen to it, you're like, yeah, nothing can stop me yeah. now. You're kind of Th- pumping yourself up with it. This you know? is about my life. Yeah, because I am facing a challenge that I should not be stopped from. Right. How did he know so much about me? Trent just knows. Trent. Trent is a man <laughs> of insight. Um, likewise, another one for me. Uh, Several years back, uh, like a definite pop example, uh, the band LaRue had a track, Bulletproof, where it, uh, the, the chorus was, next time, baby, I'll be bulletproof. And I don't know what's even possibly it was specifically about. But even, you know, I would listen to it, and it was a catchy tune, and, and I would think, yeah, I'm going to be bulletproof. You can't stop me. Yeah. So, same kind of. It's uh, the same. Yeah, yeah. It's, the, it's the Trent principle. The Trent principle. <laughs> How about yourself? <laughs> Any pop songs that uh, resonate with you? Yeah, just looking back in my history in my music player app, I think it's funny looking at the contrast between different types of lyrics. Like one of the things I see is uh, Loretta Lynn's Don't Come Home A-Drinkin' with Lovin' On Your Mind. <laughs> okay. Which, I mean, that's a pretty specific yeah. song. Like yeah, that tells a specific story. <laughs> On the other hand, you've got Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, that's how much more general could it be? You could be like... Wow, they really they really got me because I'm thinking about the weekend or that you know I'm going to get something done tomorrow. The Mac knows, the Mac knows how we think. Right. Yeah. And of course that 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 does underline like the two big trends in song, right? You have those those ultra specific songs the or even narrative songs. Yeah, yeah, like I'm thinking like Gordon Lightfoot type of uh, vibe where you're telling a very definite story about a particular scenario and with its own ups and downs. And then on the other side, um uh, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. The, the the generic anthems that you can just copy and paste your life onto. Indeed, the classification of anthems is, is key. <laughs> All right, so there you have it. The four effect, the uh, the Barnum effect, whatever you want to call it, it's all around us. It's uh, it's in our uh, it's in our religious lives. It's in our secular lives. It's in our advertising. It's in uh, it's in our, our culinary taste. So uh, we know that everyone has uh, has something to share on this particular uh, topic. So we'd love to hear from you. Uh, in the meantime, check out stufftoblowyourmind.com. That is the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes. You'll find blog posts, uh, videos. You'll find links out to our social media accounts. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. And if you want to let us know how you reacted initially to our story about the audience survey, or if you want to tell us a story you have about somebody falling for the Forer effect or the Barnum effect, you can let us know at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.